Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Eugene Ellis, director and founder of the Black, African and Asian Therapy Network, the UK's largest independent organization working therapeutically with Black, African, Caribbean and South Asian people. He's also a leading psychotherapist with a special interest in body-orientated therapies and facilitating dialogue around race and mental well-being. His book, The The Race Conversation, An Essential Guide to Creating Life-Changing Dialogue, has been described as an honest look at who we really are by none other than the writer and poet Benjamin Zephaniah, who says about it, it's here to heal the nation. That's a powerful endorsement. And I wouldn't be telling you the full story if I didn't add that Mr. Ellis is also the former chief musical engineer for Soul to Soul. Eugene Ellis, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me, uh, Miriam. Thank you. So this book is the first book I've read, certainly, which takes this psychological approach, uh, if I may use the term, to the issue of race. Um, where did the book come from? How did it come about and, and what made you want to write it? Oh, um, I mean, I've done a, a lot of work as a therapist, as you probably can imagine, with uh, traumatized people. My work is in adoption, mainly. That's where I work. And so, uh, and and the, and the children there are uh, are generally traumatized, and then they they sort of come into these new families. And I did this work for a very long time, which I which you know which I got a lot out of. But as I was doing it, I was really aware that what was happening for these children, what was happening also for the parents, the new parents, maybe the foster carers or adopters, and also the social workers and everyone else, was very, very similar to how things get played out when people have a race conversation. Uh, there, there was a, a similar dynamics were happening. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a long time thinking about trauma and how it works and how it operates and how it can pass from one generation to the next and you know how it can have an impact on people's lives very you know in the present you know that this past history sort of having this impact in the present moment and i thought it would be a really and, and, it, and it, it turned out to be quite a useful frame for people um certainly in the you know the black african and asian therapy network or barton as i like to call it there's a lot mm. of conversations about race you know, yeah actually having them every day and I'm having them across race lines or you know in groups of people of color. And certainly when it comes to conversations across race lines, um, in white groups, mixed groups, um, you know having having the word trauma there and and relating racism to trauma seemed to be something that people could get their heads around and their hands around. and it's and it, and it sort of facilitated something. Uh, it facilitated. Uh, kind of a, a sort of maybe a deepening of something mm. but, so it's over the years it just developed as a uh, digging more into it and and finding 
you know, the, the normal language of trauma, if you're working with a traumatized client, you know, there's this particular language around it. I won't go into it here, but I wanted to sure. translate some of that um, into the into the field of race. And um, what do you think trauma brings to the race conversation that's currently lacking? Well, I think what happens is when people are having the race conversation, where it seems to break down is it sort of turns into a, a sort of what you are or who I am conversation. So it becomes personal mm-hmm. very, very quickly. And uh, so initially the conversation might have started off by someone saying something or doing something that actually caused you some some hurt. And then it quickly descends into you are a racist or you shouldn't be doing this or you know it's that kind of dialogue and so that doesn't really get get you get people very far and i think the the language of of trauma takes us away from that or tries to at least take us away from that and maybe focuses more on uh you know what is actually happening in the in the here and now moment and so i bring in in, in the book i bring in a lot of ideas around mindfulness yeah and, um, compassion work which which um, sort of feeds into this area of trauma. Um, so I think I think so. I think it gives um, certainly the feedback I've been getting is that people are just more able to engage with the with the topic, uh, um, but and at the same time not lose, you know, the 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 devastation of what race can do. You know, so mm. you're, not, you're still in there, but somehow you you found a space where, where your mind can be a little more free to actually explore what is actually happening rather than blaming yourself or other people. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just curious whether this um, brings us into the the kind of window of stress tolerance, which is a, a term you use in the book, which I found particularly interesting. You say that for individuals to move beyond where they are currently and into a place of healing, they need to be within what is called their window of stress tolerance yes what, what is this and, and can it be found on social media <laughs> not on social media probably not i mean i think it's something that i mean i think people are going to have to make a decision at some level about attending to their race identity in in ways that perhaps they might not have done that done so previously and as soon as you start to go into your race identity, whether it's a white identity, black identity, or another race identity, you're going to quickly find that the the past, you know, the generational past that we've been living with around race, hundreds and hundreds of years, are going to come into the into the room very very quickly. And it's got nothing to do with you personally, but you know, you you've inherited almost this this generational past. And then it just kind of appears in the room, and um, and we can become quickly overwhelmed. Our, our our nervous systems basically are there just to regulate us, to keep us um, to keep our brains thinking. And often, when we're having the conversation or moving into some race dialogue or something, we quickly lose um, this capacity to stay grounded. So, and but if you take if you move that if you if you move the topic of conversation to something else like football mm. or something anything else mm-hmm. anything else but race 
you find that you quickly come back to um, a kind of an okay place. Yeah. So there's, so you know, our nervous systems have a capacity to manage stress, and under certain conditions, that capacity starts to diminish quite sometimes quite radically. Mm. And so there's a gap between, um, you know, when things are too much. And then, and that, so that is the window. So there's a gap where 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 our nervous system starts to get overloaded. We've gone we've gone over our window of stress tolerance. And what are some of the signs that, to look out for? Most people experience bodily sensations of some kind. Either their heart rate goes up, or they can, they feel something in the pit of their stomach, or there's just some there's a sense that there's a sort of sense of danger around. Mm. So that's the that's the sort of overriding feeling. Others might go into a sort of dissociation and actually then start to then completely lose connection with their bodies, and then then they might go into their minds. Um, you know, there's this um, idea of um, there's this idea of um, what's this idea of sort of denial of reality. You know, this this reality distortion thing that comes up quite often okay and I, we see it you know in white extremism where mm-hmm. um we're trying to understand their world but it's it's so distorted from the one that we than the, the real world that everyone else lives in that we, there must be some reality distortion going on there there's some there's something going on to mm. take them away from the reality of oppression and race oppression in particular and the horrors actually that, that are behind that. So those are the typically the symptoms. Either either you feel really overwhelmed in your body, or you just sort of go into a kind of numb place, or you mm. get into this reality distortion place. And, and they're all defences really from yeah. feeling. Yeah. And presumably it's quite hard to access um, the real person once once they go into that sort of panicked mode. Um, what what are some of the ways that you have found are helpful to bring people back? I know you mentioned obviously if you switch the the topic to football that um yeah. that, that that you can bring people back quite quickly. But I'm just interested because of of course we've had uh, Dr. Robin D'Angelo on the show who's talked about um you know uh, white fragility as yeah. something that comes up a lot in in the conversations she has yeah. um with with white people around race um. What's the connection between um, what you're discussing in the book and, and white fragility? And is it is it the same is it the same thing that we're talking about? Is white fragility essentially people going beyond their window of stress tolerance? Pretty much, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I would say that. And there so, is, uh, yeah. when you notice it, what's the what what would you suggest to people who are in those conversations? They can see, you know, white fragility popping up. They can see people, you know, clearly going past that window of stress tolerance. What 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 do you advise? Well, once once you're in that place, it's very difficult to recover to recover from it in the moment. You know, I think you just at that point you just need to go through the process or whatever's happening and back away or do something different because uh, it's very difficult to recover in the moment. So. My what I'm sort of proposing is that you can actually develop your wind your window of tolerance. You can actually expand it and make it wider around race in particular. So, but it but it takes mm. some effort. Yeah. You have to you have to do something. You have to commit yourself. 
to um, and you have to give time and uh, some space to the, to this work. So you're actually almost exercising your nervous system, if that's the right way of saying it, to be yeah. able to manage the range of feelings that come when you know when whiteness is kind of stares you know stares at this void of um, uh, of race discomfort. And did, did, uh, so you can practice that through various ways of sort of trauma techniques, I guess, to manage that. Yeah. And so is it is it would you qualify that as a form of uh, an absence of resilience or a, a lack of resilience among white people when it comes to conversations around race? Is that is that what what the issue is? Was that yeah. one part of the issue? No, I, yeah. I, no, I would say that. Yeah, I would say so. Um, there's a lack of resilience and not just uh, white people, also people of color as well. Um, you know, I think these 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 things that go on inside us happen no matter who you are. Obviously, if you're if you're white, you've have you've, you've had less opportunities to actually meet race distress uh, in its rawness. So it's probably going to be harder, but that's not necessarily so. But yes, yeah, so, uh, so so. So it's either this kind of white fragility um, or it could be white rage either comes out. So it's either one or the other that sometimes people experience that they get angry. And then the laws um, or white rage in this case, uh, the way I would see it is more is more subtle and more silent than just straight up anger. Mm. Uh, it's probably where, you know, where laws, where the where you start to crank up the little things that go on little microaggressions you crank them up to such an mm -hmm. extent and, and then they become almost and then you can you know then you activate the laws around um uh, around institutions um so it's so it's a kind of a more of a subtler thing but it's felt as rage uh, by mm. people of color but if you just look at it you don't really see much going on um mm. so it's either it's either fragility or rage or um holding it together becoming resilient, expanding your window of stress tolerance, being able to cope really with the, um, with, uh, with, with the feelings that come um, by through having the race conversation, actually just being with the discomfort of race. Mm. And so you write very frankly about the discomfort of, of many race-based conversations. Where do you believe that discomfort stems from? Well, um, we don't really like to talk about it, um, or certainly when uh, the past or history is evoked, people have very strong reactions about whether history plays any part in what's going on. But um, in my view, a lot of this, well, all of this, I mean, race as a, as a concept itself has come out of a particular context. It's come out of a particular historical context, and it's also come out of a particular historical, financial, uh, and political context. And although we could probably trace things going back ways, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries back into the past, I think what we're dealing with right now in terms of, you know, race um, oppression kind of had, had its originations in slavery. Um, you know, Af it's hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery. Uh, Africans were dealt with as property. Um, and also, you know, and these these slaves sort of from one gen from one generation to the next 
was really organizing their lives around danger and life threats. So that's kind mm. of what they were doing and organizing the movement of their bodies in relation to the threat that was posed by some white people at that time. Mm. Um, and also in response, white people also ne needed to organize their lives around what was happening. Um, the organization took the form of distance, kind of trying to keep a distance from what was happening, um, physical distance and, a, and a, maybe a distance of, of the mind as well. Mm -hmm. um, Dehumanization? Sorry? Dehumanization as well, yeah. would you say? It's yeah, the watch, you know, being observers to what was happening. You know, trauma doesn't just, just happen to you. You can observe it and be traumatized by witnessing mm. the horrific violence. Um, so that, you know, so there, people feel compelled to stay away from it. Um, um, and, and there was also potential violence um, and loss of wealth um, through uprisings. You know, people are reacting to their condition and creating, you know, up these uprisings. You know, so there was so there was quite a lot for white people to, to fear. Um, and along the way, in my mind, at least, there's a sort of, there was a creation of a psychological system that kind of kept the kept you know white bodies away from all of the mess and the difficulty and the distress and and also to perpetuate um the state of affairs so it kind of kept so the balance was kind of kept as it was and over the years you know we've literally passed this on um white families black families through the generations until this present moment so uh, my, my belief i think is you know, and it's a, it's a belief that's held by many trauma people who work with trauma, not necessarily race trauma, but trauma in any kind of trauma. That uh, you know, the trauma gets held in the body somehow. It, somehow we keep hold of it, and it's unconscious. Mm. We don't know it's there, and then something happens. Someone says something. They might use the N word, or someone might talk about their experience of being, you know, being racially abused or whatever. And all of a sudden, all of that stuff comes up and uh, kind of makes itself known. And we're, and in some ways, we're kind of just puppets, really, playing out this story from the past. So I thought it was important for people to have a sense of all of that. I mean, I've given a quick, broad view of that, but it's, mm. there's a lot there. There's a lot, there's a lot more there for people so, to get their heads around. Are we all carrying that? Trauma, I mean, presumably not in the same way, right? Racialized, whether you're racialized as black or brown or white, you'll be mm. carrying that trauma differently. And but, but everyone is carrying trauma. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, I think everyone is. Um, I think everyone's involved in that. Um, and people are carrying different, different, um, different, um, um, different styles of trauma, different ways of different levels of it but I, I believe that we're all holding something of it of that past in us and uh, I mean people because when I when I do these do this work around racial identity with people they always ask well where, where did all these feelings come from and uh, and uh, so I had to think well where did they come from and so just trying to you know having a sort of coherent narrative about maybe where that comes from I think is is important and I think it's important not to also get too caught up with maybe what you know what people no, that all people are feeling you know having the same experience 
mm-hmm. but people have different experiences within all of that. But and, yeah. And 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 just so just to so slightly push on that because I I sense yeah. that there will definitely be some people who would sure. say, you know, uh, white people as a group, and of course we, you know, not essentializing individuals here, yeah. but but white people as a group have been uh, perpetrators of trauma, perpetrators yeah. of harm against people of color, uh, yeah. as you say, for for hundreds of years, and yeah. uh, and and I think some people might say, well, you know, do we need to recognize their trauma as perpetrators of such harm? Well, uh, we will be missing a reality if we don't. Um, mm. And it depends on what you, it depends on what you want to, what you're talking about, what you're trying to work on in this, in this moment. Mm. I mean, the book is not really for perpetrators who are, are um, consciously you know um causing race harm so that that is that to me is one group of people Mm -hmm. uh, a particular group of people um but i think a lot of white people aren't in aren't in that category they or they feel like they're not perpetrators and of course they are i mean we all are in some ways Mm. but i think that group also um it, it uh, to me that group has the potential actually to really really make it make an impact on um on sort of stopping racism in 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 kind of making it cease mm. so that was my target group really in some ways rather than the group that are going to be very very difficult to shift who um who are experiencing um reality distortion it's really hard to create some dialogues around there that are going to be helpful Mm. so 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 my thoughts were well let's just work on those who aren't quite far as far down that road who are what who are wanting to make some contribution to um to to, you know making racism uh, have less impact on society yeah so that was my so that was so that's kind of where that's when i when i'm talking i'm talking very much to that particular group so that yeah but and, the and perpetrators yeah. are also traumatized too and we know that if you if you work in just in domestic violence we know that the perpetrators of domestic violence have been are traumatized by actually doing it but also have a history of trauma yeah no, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's always um, difficult um, for victims to uh, necessarily recognize the the um, story of a perpetrator, um, which, mm. which may have contributed to them coming, you know, arriving at the place of being a perpetrator. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, like you say, domestic violence, I was recently working on something to do with restorative justice, you know, and the idea of um, for, for victims sometimes actually don't want to see uh, the humanity of the person who perpetrated because it's too hard to mm. digest mm. that this person is also um, someone struggling with their own um, with their own demons, as it were. Um, I'm I'm wondering in your experience of these conversations how you respond to 
um, white people who, you know, you might talk to them about this sort of generational trauma, um, mm. which, which some people believe actually is, is, is then in our genes, you know, that we carry it and, and pass it on even. Mm. Um, but how do you respond to those who will say, um, because I hear this a lot, sure. you know, well, well, I, you know, I wasn't involved in that trauma, you know, it wasn't me, I'm a new generation, I don't subscribe to that. I denounce it. Why am I still being tarred with this brush? Well, it's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Tarred with that mm -hmm. brush in the first yeah. place. But Indeed. the, I mean, um, I guess we can see how, how you know how generationally things get passed on. You know, when you're when you're a little, when you're little, and you're a child, you know, and you're walking down the street with your parents or a parent and there's a black guy across the road, you know, you become curious about about that person. And you might even ask a question of your parents. And very, but very, very quickly, you, you, you come to realize that you can't be as curious as a child. You can't, you can't bring your curiosity to that experience because either, either you're sort of shushed, keep quiet, keep quiet, or you, you get some nonverbal feedback from your parents that this topic is out of bounds. So yeah. immediately, we haven't gone back very far at all. We've only gone back to the, your childhood. Yeah. And we can already see that the seeds are already being sown quite early about what's supposed to be talk and talked about and what's not supposed to be talked about. Mm. Um, so no, you haven't had any particular, you, you haven't been involved but you have been involved in terms of receiving something from your parents and, and the wider society about about black people, about who they are. Um, and then when you actually in, in conversations with people, um, maybe later on in your life around race, you know, those taboos, they come they come up, you know, they, they, they surface. And really, I mean, I talk a lot in the book about the race construct and um, you know, the central idea is is blackness and whiteness. That's the sort of those central constructs that sort of create this race construct. Mm. And, you know, one of the defining features, I guess, of the race construct is that we, um, we, 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 we try, well, the race construct itself kind of pushes people or demands of people that they don't attend to the hurt that racism causes black people. So oh, that's really, really, really hard interesting. That. That's a really interesting point. So can you just repeat it? Because I just think, yeah. So, so whiteness as a structure demands that we not pay attention to the hurt experienced by black people. Is that right? Yes. Mm. Uh, I mean, you, that's in very psychological yeah. terms, but um, yeah. I think it plays itself out in the political arenas, mm -hmm. uh, in institutional arenas as well. So that that basic, I'll do I'll, I'll do anything. Some people will just do anything, anything else, but focus and pay attention to the hurt of a black person that's in the room. And you can mm. see it played. You can see it playing itself out. Um, I mean, well, I mean psychotherapy, and it's it's a different it's a different place than most places uh, to see this bit getting played out, especially in training. For instance, if someone's training to become a therapist. And uh, they're a person of color, and the therapy space is mainly 
white space. And then the black person tries to speak about their experience. I mean, you know, as a therapist, you're supposed to talk about your experience of who you are, your identity. And, uh, and that experience makes you robust enough to kind of deal with other people's stuff. Um, so we're encouraged to mm -hmm. kind of speak from the heart, speak from where who we are. And but when, you know, these people of color try to talk about their experiences of race, which actually is quite seminal, actually, that, that experience of race is actually the main part of their uh, distress. When they talk about that, um, they're met with this 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 uh, demand that we can't attend to it. So they'll, so they'll either be silent, there'll be a lot of silence, or sometimes there'll be anger. Why is this? Why are you always talking about this black thing? Or you know, they're, they're, anything will happen. But mm. uh, pay attention to it, and it's very very clear to see, um, certainly for a person of color at least, what's yeah. happening. Uh, in those t in those space and it's still a mystery as to why no one else can see it but the, you know the race construct is very strong it's very it's powerful isn't it it's um and it it creates this reality distortion field for, for people so what is happening in that space for, from your perspective for um because i am you know when you were talking i'm envisioning mm. this this sort of therapy group and mm. um you know uh, a black person talking about their experience and um and and so what what does it look like concretely it looks like literally people interrupting and saying sorry this isn't the space for that and how does that get justified well <laughs> it, it, um, people say stuff and it, and which is very difficult to justify so there might there might just be silence i mean that's typically what happens so no one says anything and then the topic moves on to something else. So that's that's generally kind of what happens. Occasionally, yeah. someone might say. Um, someone might sort of, yeah, someone might get angry or kind of say, yeah. They, they, they'll get angry for some reason because their particular repression isn't being met. Whatever that oppression is, so it could be their. Um, it could be a working class, for instance. So sometimes the topic shifts onto that. So okay. it's quite subtle. So it's not, but sometimes it can be quite, quite blatant. It can be like, well, actually, politics isn't pol um, therapy. Psychotherapy isn't a place for politics and oppression. Mm. Um, you know, if you yes. want to do that work, you can go and become a politician or, yeah. or a philosopher. But it's in therapy, we're dealing yeah. here now with, you know, your, your, you know, your childhood traumas. That's what we do. That's the work we're doing here. Yeah, it can be and, that. and even yeah, even in that, the sense that you, uh, some therapists would not recognise that some people's very bodies are politicised. That's not, you know, you don't politicise yourself. You are politicised, right? As a person of yeah. colour, you didn't, you didn't wave a flag saying I'd like to be politicised. It, yeah, it's yeah. by virtue of our dynamics. So, so even in therapy sessions where people are, um, are meant to be particularly attentive to, to other people's emotions and realities, that's something that's still very stark. The, 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 the racial dynamics are still very stark in that space. That's what, what do you take from that? I mean, I thought when I, when I went into the profession, I just perhaps naively thought that this, like you did, like this was a space that I could attend to some of that hurt. And I was quickly disabused of that um, idea. And, you know, the therapy world, like any other world, is the same as all the other places that we go and do all the other places of, you know, law or, I don't know, 
business, big business, various other places, um, the dynamics still are still there. And in some ways, because therapies therapists are supposed to be able to deal with these hurts, and and the fact that it sort of struggles to to make to do that makes it, makes that sort of makes it even starker. Where in other areas, you wouldn't expect people to be doing that. Um, yeah. So it's kind of more in other places. So it's, it's so it's the same dynamic wherever. But I think in the therapy world, we people see it more because we're supposed to be able to do it. Yeah. Uh, we're supposed to be able to do it, and and it's just not happening. So people see the fissures really quite intensely there. Yeah. Um, no, I I can I can yeah I can I can visualize it. In fact, um, um I mean you, you t- that brings me on to one of the questions I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you you mention an adage in the book. You say sticks and stones may break my bones, but faces and words will never hurt me, which we all have heard as children. But you mm-hmm. say this is fine for the playground, but it's not for race conversations. Can you help us understand why? that's not appropriate in race conversations? I mean, race com- conversations are very loaded, aren't they? Um, and they're loaded with his- history and they're loaded with um, loss, potential loss of wealth, loss of stuff. And um, where, you know, if you were being bullied on the playground because you were big, you know, you're a big person or you got a big head or whatever, those things aren't necessarily connected to, they're connected to you, but not to a wider system of oppression. Mm. And um, so the, the language of race um, is itself hot stuff because it triggers, can very easily trigger those deep um, political and um, psychological wounds, which are just sitting there ready to be triggered. And uh, so being careful with language or at least, you know, having the sense that language triggers this latent stuff that's kind of just sitting there for people. Mm. I think it's important just to recognize, I mean, not that you need to be super careful, but, you know, if you do uh, trigger that, then you can take responsibility for triggering it rather rather than saying, why are you getting so upset? It's only just a word. Um, yeah. yeah, which 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 is interesting because I think the language around race. I mean, you talk about it in the book is um, itself a minefield. Um, you know, I think even for people who have been working in this space for a long yeah. time, it's it's complicated to find the right terminology because I guess ultimately race is a construct. In, which is inherently hierarchical and all of the language within it describes hierarchy so you don't want to perpetuate them by using it but that's what, what we're referring to mm. because that's still it's the construct that that kind of permeates society so um, I, I, you know, the language issue is one I think that comes up a lot. I know that when I have done events, um, that, that white people often say, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm always scared of saying the wrong thing. I don't want to speak up in these contexts because I don't know um, if I'm going to say something wrong. Um, what do you say to to people who have those concerns? You know, there there are legitimate concerns, but also that tells me really that they haven't done. If if they if they're asking that question right there, 
uh, they, they have a bit more work to do just on what race is, where, where does it come from, um, spending more time thinking about um, racism. I mean, there's so much resources online, so many, so much great thinking, really great ways of um, organizing the landscape, the racial landscape that people can access. Um, and I, I think part of the race construct is, um, is a kind of res almost like a resource phobia. It's almost like you just don't want to even get into the conversation. And uh, so what I would say to those people is actually, maybe if it's too difficult to speak, maybe just listen. Mm. And maybe listen and keep listening and keep listening until you 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 kind of get a sense of what's happening here and what you, and and what you'll find is that what you're getting a sense of is how easy it is for people to move away from the central uh ex experience of race which is hurt and pain mm. and you know if you can bring your language to focus on that area uh people will be heard because i think a lot of language sort of takes us away from that and on and and uh so you know i'm bringing you know i'm trying to sort of bring language into into focusing on that sex and then if you focus on that part i think there's less likelihood of the words you're using um being uh misheard yeah um, no, in I some think ways it doesn't really matter yeah. what you say if you're not yeah. attending to you can, you can be as gentle as and and uh and as thoughtful as you can about the words you use but if you're not attending to the hurt part of, the, of what's going on i think it, i think it's all experienced the same way mm. yeah no I, I i think that's a really important um point for for, for us all to to take on board really I, I i've always thought that there's for some people there's no choice to find the language of race right if you're directly impacted by race you're gonna have to find the tools to uh express that resist it uh, push back against it. Um, mm. The vocabulary will be flawed, but you will have to find a way to articulate resistance. And that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, the fact that white people find it, um, myself included, by the way, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a minefield terrain mm. because mm. it's um, talking about sometimes experiences that you may have only ever read about. <laughs> you can't, yeah. you haven't lived that reality. So you don't know the minutiae of what that experience is like. And so, you know, I say to people, you know, are you going to put a foot wrong at some point? Absolutely. <laughs> it's going to yeah. happen, you know. Yeah. Um, and I guess the question is, you know, how urgent is the resistance ultimately? You know, is it worth you fighting through the moments of, you know, I guess what, what you experience in those times, which is embarrassment, humiliation, um, feeling like, you know, you're actually not on the right side, as it were, that you're, that you're trying to be uh, progressive in your understanding of the world, but you're actually still indebted to so many of these um unspoken and, and unconscious biases um actually i'd be interested to hear what you think of the concept of unconscious biases because i know some people resist that idea i mean yeah i mean unconscious biases are are part are part and parcel aren't they of the race construct and 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 also part and parcel of that generational traumatic history that we 
that we um, that have that has created this uh, uh, consumer society that we have right now, you know. Um, and so I think I, I think um, I think to not have those biases, if if you're going to discount that these biases exist, then it's really hard to make sense of what's going on in with, with racism. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't know how to describe it. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to how to navigate it if I didn't really get a sense of that. Yeah. And it's not so much that the biases themselves. I mean, we all have biases in all kinds of areas. Um, we might prefer to be with men rather than women. You know, just the bias of that. Or, you know, those kind of biases exist. And um, I don't think people can deny that. But they, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to race. There's all, you know, somehow denial just clicks in, in all kinds of areas, including race. You know, so even say, you know, English history of kings and queens. Yeah. You know, does that really matter? Well, some people say yes, it really does. It's really important to understand it, to study it, to think about the consequences of how that history plays out in the present. But yeah, when it comes to people of color, somehow the history doesn't seem to come into the game. And so it's a, so it's it's um it's always um there's always a, a fair healthy amount of denial mm. uh, when we ordinarily think about other thing, other areas of life, and then when we yeah. apply that same thing to race, somehow, uh, somehow that's wiped the slate is wiped clean or something, and yeah. uh, those, those things don't don't apply. So again, again, that's just another version of how do we stay away from the pain here? How do we stay away from the hurt parts of? I mean, what would happen if we did actually, if the world did, did attend to the hurt mm. racism? What would what would actually happen? And I've thought about this as a thought experiment. Yeah. And yes. well, what would happen? You, uh, you would be, I mean, the world would be horrified by what it saw. Um, it might have a compassionate response to that. And and then and then what? Well. Then there might need to be some kind of repair done. Uh, people might feel compelled to actually attend to the hurt and actually do things that would kind of make it make it okay. Yeah. Um, but then that starts to edge onto, you know, this wealth accumulation paradigm, which um, reparations, which sits up on top of the race construct. This race, so this um, wealth accumulation idea that we need to people need to accumulate as much as they can as quickly yes. as they can and use other people in order to do it. That becomes under threat. That comes under threat if you start to be compassionate. So it's so it's um so there's lots of things at, at you know it's not just this idea of staying away from the hurt, but the hurt staying uh, attending to the hurt has consequences mm. for people. Um, so big consequences to uh, how we organize um, the resources of the world. Right. And you say in the book, the race construct is one example of the wealth accumulation paradigm. Um, yeah. Obviously, all of our listeners will do, do due diligence and go and read the whole book. But for, okay. for, for, for the sake of this episode, could you maybe unpack that for us? What is the wealth accumulation paradigm and what's the connection to race? That's a good question. Um, I mean, yeah, the I mean, one of the things that um, I put in the book, which is 
this idea of the invention of, of whiteness. And uh, you know, whiteness has a, you know, a symbolic and, and an economic value. There's, so the economic part is really quite important. And you know, when the sugar trade was starting up and uh, people from Europe were going to the Caribbean and also to North America to, um, to, to grow this, this crop amongst, amongst other crops, um, certainly in North America, the North American colonies in the mid 1600s, um, you know, there, there, there was, um, you know, African laborers were brought to, to, um, to America, uh, along with British and European laborers. And it became, and over time, there was lots of things happened. Um, but eventually this idea of white sort of came came out this idea of whiteness and actually even the word white came into law as, for the very first time so in a way it was kind of something that was invented almost but yeah it was invented for a particular reason um there was lots of economic conditions around at that time um that prevented profits in the ways that were that were happening so something needed to shift to keep the profits going to keep um you know the uh the people in in the center of london who are the stock exchange and all those kind of other people keep keeping you know keeping that system going keeping the funds going to britain and other other parts of the europe to keep the industrial revolution uh wheels on um and and africans were used were exploited um for that to happen but there needed to be some a con some kind of construct to, uh, to to make that work. So this idea of whiteness was there, and and whiteness was a was a win win really for for the white elite at that time. You had a sort of planter class and various others, because mm. whiteness gives poor white people some sense of status. Um, they're not they're not the black people. They're not the Africans. And this sense of status kind of pacifies their protests against being exploited themselves. I mean, they were exploited too. Um, and yeah. whiteness also encouraged people to, you know, militantly police the boundary between whiteness and blackness. And then all of this kind of created this kind of self-imposed divide and rule between, you know, the poor white people and the black people and the Africans. Um, and all of this kind of kind of kept in check. The, this opposition from these two groups, because these two groups were actually beginning to, um, all the workers, you know, in, in the North American colonies were beginning to come together to, mm. to 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 put the pressure on the planter class and the white elite to give them better conditions. So, in a way, these 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 ideas were ways of kind of splitting those those people apart yeah. and giving white people. A sense that they weren't an underclass. Actually, they were they were somewhere above the underclass, and and now black people were the underclass. So it kind of created this situation where poor white people were then policing themselves, and also policing the boundary of the, also policing black people. You know, through through a lot of the you know white nationalist kinds of organisations that came up. Mm. So 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 there's a, so there's a kind of there's a and and what was driving that was this wealth accumulation idea that um, in order to sort of transcend suffering or something, you needed to accumulate as much as you can, as quickly as you can, and 
the, the and, American dream. The American dream. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And, and, and and along the way, your um, you know ethics and mor- morals kind of went to the wayside. You know, because I think people began to even the white elite began started to believe in what they were what they were saying and what they were preaching. So it became mm. almost like a reality. Uh, what was happening, and all of this was feeding. And then obviously, when slavery ended, things you know um, there was a threat to that uh, system, and so colonialism came to take its place. Mm. Um, a less harsher version of slavery, but in essentially the same the same was happening i.e. resources were being taken um, and uh, body resources in terms of just labor, physical labor, mm. and also um, in terms of c- um, colonialism anyway, um, uh, the resources of, of the land. So, yeah, so that's, so that, so in, in some ways that is still, it's still kind of happening in some ways. Um, mm. I mean, the, 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 uh, the targets have shifted perhaps to different places in the world. But there are still, you know, um, the way that the political system and the financial system run is that they need to have these people doing stuff for free almost. Yeah. Slave labor almost. Um, and, and it kind of reorganizes itself in different ways. Um, but, but we are still left with this legacy um, from those early times. Hmm. And I mean, that that evolution that you've described um, from kind of slavery to colonialism, do you see a modern permutation of that system? Because I know some theorists would would argue that the current form of capitalism essentially relies on a north-south divide in which the wealth of the global north re- is, is deeply uh, indebted um, to the exploitation uh, materially and physically of um, the global south um, and and arguably some of the modes of production you know I'm thinking for example right now of the Uyghurs in China who are mm. quite literally picking cotton in slave camps in China mm. Mm. Um, do, do you think there is a, a new permutation of that hierarchy? Oh yeah there's, there's always new permutations yeah um you know, and when 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 a particular group find find it in themselves to trans, transcend their condition somehow and break out of that, uh, you know, a new group, a new place in the world will be found to kind of keep the keep the wheels running. So mm. absolutely, I think it's um, it's it it's something that that needs that needs to happen, really, isn't it? For for, th- for things to stay as they are, um, in terms of you know having these huge, great, big corporations and individuals within them with you know huge amounts of wealth and uh so in order to to, in order to facilitate that you need as you say all of those things that you've just said Mm. um yeah so so um i know that we haven't uh, got much time and i really wanted to ask you about two things um Mm. one was um you say that finding your voice is an essential antidote to the construct of race itself. How do you find your voice in this conversation? Well, being able to speak when uh, there's a topic of race around. So that's what I mean by sort of finding your voice, finding a way of talking into that. And there's several ways of doing that because I think 
um, one is to is take you know take on as much information as you can about the topic. And there's lots of rich writing around it, and there's this podcast, there's various other things. But I think also um, being with other people, I think, is also important because it's not something that you can do very easily on your own. Uh, the way that I describe it is to literally get into groups of people who you feel are like-minded, and because I think there's something about taking, you know, taking in information and maybe processing it for yourself individually. But it's also this idea of being in being in a space with different bodies, different people, um, and some in some ways it doesn't really matter what you say in there. Although you try not to say something that's going to take you out of your window of stress tolerance, because you're not going to want to go back. But you want to sort of yeah find the place that you feel like that's less likely to happen. But but you're then you're also challenged. Yeah, and just stay there, you know um there's everything every part of our body is is telling us not to go not to be in these kind of spaces you know everything about us is telling us not to go and we have to it's a sort of like a but sometimes we feel compelled to go only because of our ethical values or whatever we we come with and then just being in these spaces um in a way it's um it's it's what can i say Although I use the word finding your voice, it sort of makes you feel like, oh, you need to speak and say something. But I'm I'm thinking about it on a much subtler level than that, because in a way we're communicating all the time, race all the time without speaking. In yeah, fact, we communicate absolutely. more without speaking than we do with actual speaking. Mm. And you know, we 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 have a race conversation going on, or something's happening in the world, and we feel it in our bodies. And then we communicate that sense of danger that we feel, and we communicate it to other people, and mm. they and they feel the danger, and then they communicate it to someone else. So it's a kind of like it's this group thing where we one person feels it, and then everyone feels it. So there's there's a there's a process of feeling safe or safer than you were before, mm. or feeling not quite so triggered inside. And if you're not so triggered inside. The chances are high, highly likely that you're going to have something sensible to say. Yeah. If you're triggered inside, then the, the chances are you'll say something that's not very sensible and not, doesn't work very well, and is very defensive. And yes. Good. So there's something about finding your voice for me means about finding that inner place and expanding your window of stress tolerance so you can manage it and sort of stay stay within yourself. Um, so that's the process of finding your voice. It's, it's a, it's a big long process. It's a commitment, you know. Mm. It's a big thing, and it takes a lifetime. If you're a person of color, you're, you know, you're more compelled. You may feel more pushed to do it, but that's not necessarily the case either. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's yeah. listening to you speak. It's, it's so sounds so obvious, but the, uh, the platforms that we currently use for these yeah. conversations. Um, are so important to consider, right? Because yeah. every platform is designed with a purpose and some platforms are designed to foster, you know, short, punchy, yeah. uh, actually quite divisive or, um, you know, and they might actually be true, right? <laughs> What's said yeah. might be completely true. But, are, the, yeah. but, but the way you, that it's formulated is going to trigger 
somebody else. And so then a conversation, you know, this is my experience, for example, of Twitter as a platform. Um, I have to massively um, uh, argue against the use of Twitter as a platform for conversing on race, because firstly, you know, I don't know how 148 characters or whatever is not going to cut it. Mm. Um, and, and, and my sense is also that a lot of it is about being flippant, because the, you know, the coolest person on Twitter is the person who can be flippant in 148 characters, isn't it? That's, it's kind of the nature of the beast. I mean, are, are there are there platforms you discount or that you don't advise people to engage in race conversations on? And do you have a preferred platform for those conversations? I mean, I like. I mean, I do like Twitter. But I mean, I do. Um, I've come to like it a bit more. But you're right. The, uh, those platforms are designed for for likes aren't they and for t and for views and things like that and and it, and it, and it's the things that get the most views and the most likes and then people copy that and yeah. then it just sort of descends into these as you say these three two minute sound bites or even less than that um uh to say a few characters so i think if you're really feeling race-based stress or if you're really feeling stressed by by the experience of being online um, in, on certainly on social media, I would definitely advise cutting that down dramatic, dramatically. Um, for some people, though, I think it can be a source of connection with like-minded people. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I was going to guide anyone to anywhere, I'd probably be guide them to long-form discussion yeah. on the internet. And there's so much of that. Um, yeah. Blogs, um, you know, whole websites, you know, given up to you know, really, really diving into some stuff. Um, uh, D'Angelo, you know, has this huge, huge array of stuff. And yeah. there, there's all these people with all this stuff. And it's just sitting there and, um, and uh, you know, people don't want to access it for whatever reason. But yeah, so I, I would definitely guide people towards that and, and use, you know, the, the more social media type things, the Twitters and the Facebooks as more uh, uh to, to 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 move away from that if it's if it's overwhelming and i know a lot of people when you know, you know at the time of george floyd's killing a lot of people were getting involved in social media and getting completely overwhelmed by by what was going on which yeah. wasn't good it's not good for them it's not good for anyone yeah um, i mean including videos of the killing itself right i yeah. mean i think there was a lot yeah. of debate over um the dignity of people's final moments and you know being bystanders on a platform in which you know you're sharing fashion and makeup tips is this really the place to share someone's you know last moments of life and, and this is take us on to a different conversation but since mm -hmm. you deal with trauma I, I think there's a lot of trauma that is vehicled on platforms in a way that doesn't honor um, or doesn't always honor uh, what it is that we are looking at and no. the feelings of the people connected to that individual, you know, um, his mom, his sisters, his family. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I did want to ask you about one point you make in the book that I think um, would be very interesting to hear if you had much of a controversial pushback, but you say we can have the race conversation at the, and at the same time, transcend aspects of the race construct yeah. and I know that for some people who do not believe the race construct can be transcended that yeah. would be 
um, quite a strong statement. What makes you confident that that is possible? I've done it myself. I've seen other people go through it as well, go through mm -hmm. a process. So that's why I sort of feel really confident about it. It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I'm coming from a, I mean, I'm a Buddhist as well. So I'm coming from that perspective of seeing suffering in a particular way. Okay, and, yes, uh, of course. So yeah. that is um, informing me and a lot of the, a lot of Buddhism, a lot of the, uh, the, the writing around um, what it means to be human, what it means to be um, in this world is, is kind of informing me. So I'm, I'm being informed by that, but I'm also just my own experience. Um, I th because I, and also I think the race construct has lots of uh, aspects to it, some of which are just going to be almost impossible to change, like other people's behavior and things that they do and the impact that it has on me. So I can't change that. Mm -hmm. But what I, what I mean by that is that I can change how I respond, how I can, I can change my own suffering in that. Um, so I, uh, you know, I was going through a lot of suffering around being a black person, being a black male. And, and I, I, I don't feel that quite so much or it doesn't, it doesn't sort of take over my life as it used to. So mm. that's what I mean by there is, is a, there, there is a transcendence of something there. And that, that must have meant that I, I bought into something. I bought into this idea that I am less, you know, I'm, I'm a one dimensional or two, two dimensional human being. And then I discovered, oh, hang on a sec. I've got all these other dimensions and not just that. Mm. And, and so that, you know, that, that kind of, um, that kind of work, it, it does take a while, but, uh, you know, I, I feel that I have transcended my, that, that part of my suffering. I'm not saying I won't still feel suffering. If someone gives me abuse, I will still suffer, but I can transcend a bit of my, my contribution to it, my own internal contribution towards myself. Mm. There's, uh, there's things that happen outside and then how I respond to them. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason why I should suffer that you know that's that's the rational part of me why should i suffer because someone else's behavior but of course so it so it depends on that that depends on the level of what's got what's going on out there if directed directly at me yeah those words mean nothing um if it's something slightly outside of me or something slightly further away it just means that i've just got more um flexibility i feel and just being able to talk about this stuff and um mm. And 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 have something hopefully sensible to say uh, when uh, when when it when we when people start getting kind of tied up or kind of you know when um, you know, people start getting confused about things. Mm. So that, that's so that's what I mean by transcending. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so more more like a personal internal yeah. transcendence, I think, yeah. which. Um, is different to, I think, what sometimes people uh, like to talk about, you know, when we talk about transcending uh, race, moving p p past it, which sometimes can be perceived as sort of not wanting to take it seriously as a as a sort of framework of meaning. Yeah. Um, but, 
before we get to the quick fire round, um, I did promise to ask you about the Meghan and Harry interview, which I think a lot of people would value your take on. And I know you wanted, uh, or perhaps you had something to say about Harry, uh, Harry's response in the interview. I know there's been a lot of attention on on uh, Meghan, and actually, in my opinion, maybe not enough attention on her um, from a psychological perspective as a mm-hmm. as, as a young as a young mum, uh, you know, pregnant with a small child feeling rejected by a family which is mm. a, a huge deal whoever you mm-hmm. are I don't care who you are Absolutely. that's 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 a horrific thing to go through when you're pregnant especially um but let's let's talk about Harry I mean what what were your what's your take on um his response to the the sort of uproar against what is alleged to have happened within the royal family yeah I mean, Meghan's story is very familiar, isn't it? It's sort of there's no there's nothing new to 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 glean there. People might might disagree with her and various other things. So I just but I thought Harry's Harry's story was less predictable, I guess, and uh, a, a lot more interesting for me just to just to mm. watch. I mean, because in a way, you know, Prince Harry like like the rest of the royal family, you know, he visits these Commonwealth countries, um, and you know, he's this ambassador and. Um, you know, it's mainly, you know, black and brown people that he goes and visits. And even though he sees the impact of race very directly with his own eyes in these various countries uh, that he's visited, um, it was not until he had a very personal relationship, actually, with a person of colour mm. and, uh, you know, skin in the game, you know, to yeah. use that phrase, through having a child with that person, mm. that he came to realise that something, there was something very profound that he didn't realise before. You know, he was highly emotionally invested in his child and he began to then see things that he hadn't seen before. You know, and he realized that it wasn't it wasn't necessarily just being black itself that led to poverty or, or disenfranchisement, that it was mm. actually blackness within an establishment of whiteness. Yeah. And, and whiteness actively putting blackness in a situation of being being afraid and unprotected. Mm. So, you know, in my, in my, you know, Harry got it, you know, this is the holy grail, you know, black activism, you know, for white people to get it. Mm. And, and for a member of the royal to get it, you know, given his history is pretty profound. Yeah. Although he does have a history of Diana, so, you know, he's, he's been primed in some way to, uh, um, you know, have this other experience of being, being a royal. Um, yeah. But once someone gets it, there's no turning back, really. I mean, I, th- I think he just couldn't stay after that. You know, once you get it, the world looks very different. Mm. And all of a sudden, you can see race playing itself out. It's very stark, painful. Yeah. I imagine that Harry might just thought, I just can't stay. You know, I just I can't stay and watch this any longer and just had to leave. So, you know, so I mean, but that part of the, you know, that part of the story hasn't really been focused on. But it just felt really important to kind of grab it i hope it does come at some point down the news cycle (laughs) yeah probably won't i think it's interesting that that isn't the story that's been focused on because it would require a recognition of so many things i think a a form of protective masculinity that recognize the need to kind of stand up for your wife and your child but in full recognition of her subjectivity which was not his own it was a very distinct experience of being in that household and um 
I I guess I think maybe because uh, I know that there'll be some critics will say, but well, they, these were two people who were sort of forced out, but they kind of still wanted to be part of this establishment, um, and that that's an establishment in itself, which is arguably a kind of pinnacle of whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. That's established mm-hmm. itself um off the back of 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 um the exploitation of, of black and brown bodies and so um it's an interesting uh, consideration that 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 ultimately he's stepped away they both have chosen to step away or been made to step away we don't know the full story mm. on that one but it appears to have been made to step away but but that there's still an attachment to uh the institution um and and it'll be interesting to see you know what harry does next in this uh, particular position because um yeah as as you say the once the awakening begins um you know it also comes with a level of responsibility i think particularly when you're in a position of uh social power um yeah. which they both are um so with all that said <laughs> let's get to the quick fire round um okay. so these are quick quick questions with relatively quick answers but um definitely not simple ones um what's your definition of whiteness oh um mm. <laughs> uh definition of whiteness would be um yeah but definition of whiteness would be yeah um what i said earlier really about it's um it's not focusing on the distress and hurt of people of color and um, um, structures and things to to make sure that doesn't happen. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is political power and wealth accumulation. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? Is the universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Well, um, when you're working with these group traumas, um, collective traumas, they are very difficult to shift. I imagine somewhere down the road there will be that post-racism, but not for a while. Um, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, it needs to be talked about more. Great, thank you so much. Um, can I just say for people who would like to uh, learn a bit more about your work, um, you know, access your book, is there is there a website that people can be directed to? Where Where can people find you online? People can find me on uh, Twitter um, at uh, Bart, Barton Man, B-A-A-T-N-M-A-N, Barton Man. Mm-hmm. And also I have a website, but the, the, the Barton website, the Black and Asian Therapies Network website, which is www.baatn.org.uk. Um, they might get a little bit about me, but also a lot about the work that we're doing um, uh, with therapeutic, black, within the therapeutic community for um people of color mm-hmm. um yes and the, yes so those are the uh, two places and where can people where's the best place to purchase your book from um it's published through confer but the um the book uh, the bookseller is uh, karnak k-a-r-n-a-c karnak karnak books mm-hmm. and i think up until the end of march 
people can get a 25% discount. Uh, yes. Which is actually cheaper I, than the than the than the than Amazon. So um, they can go to and then but they need to use a code Ellis twenty five. So that's E double L I S twenty five for those who'd yeah. like to use the discount code on the Karnak uh, website to purchase yeah, the think, book. I think that one closes at the thirty first of March, so money to Okay. Be- yeah. 31st of March, guys, um, get ordering. <laughs> well, um, Eugene Ellis, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. <laughs>